Hello, hello everyone. Welcome to A Reason for Hope. We're very glad you're joining us today for A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an hour-long live broadcast, which is guided for the most part by your questions on the Bible. So if you have questions on the Bible, maybe a verse or passage of scripture you have a question on, maybe even Christianity itself, or, or even other religions and worldviews, any honest question that you have, as long as you know, we're going to delve into the Bible to find the answers to those questions. That's what we're all about here at A Reason for Hope. So we're very glad you're joining us. You can send your questions in through our multiple online platforms, which I'll run through in just a moment here. So whichever way you're joining us, send us in your questions, get them in early, and we'd love to get to them all today on our show. My name is Dave Robson. I'll be your host today. And like I said, fielding all those questions as they come on in with us today, to my immediate right, your left, Peter Martin. How are you doing today? Doing good. Yeah? Minus the allergies, I'm doing good. Yeah, we're having really bad allergies here in Tucson, Arizona, really bad. Like allergies to the point where you feel like you have the flu, that kind of, yeah. that kind of bad. But Well, we're glad you're here. Thank you for making time. Yeah. I was thinking today, Peter Martin is, uh, when I had kids here in America, I had to pick names that I would say like an American would say. So my son, his name's London, because I pronounce that like you would, but Peter Martin would not be a name that would have made the cut. <laughs> Anything with a T or an R That's <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Work, it was yeah. tough, it was tough. <laughs> Peter Martin, Peter Martin, I can't even say it like you say it, but I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're not one of my children, I'm otherwise <laughs> I would be pronouncing for it For more reasons than one. But yeah. that's right, for more reasons. but I'm glad you're my friend, and I'm glad you are here <laughs> with us today as well. Sean Richards, Pastor Sean Richards, how are you doing? I'm far away. You're far away. You are. I've moved you down. You've been naughty and I've moved you down the table. I've been demoted. That's right. <laughs> That's not how it works. Reliability is It's a promotion. To right. Closer to the door is a promotion, actually. But how's your allergies doing today? We've all been under the weather. Well, you recall I was uh, out last Wednesday with, uh, unfortunately, a pretty gnarly onset fever. But what was interesting about it is I pursued a natural remedy. I can't have any like antihistamines or anti-inflammatories. I just get a reaction to it. So I had a natural <laughs> remedy for the fever and it actually nuked my allergies at the same time. Oh, result. So yeah, <laughs> maybe you can share with the group. <laughs> so uh, liquid oregano. Oh, oh, yeah. Make Snorted. some tea out of that, yeah. Natural yeah. thing. <laughs> Very cool. I just drink it straight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. wow. Well, that's, uh, that tends Oof. to burn and repeat on you. But anyway, we're not here to talk about allergies. Joking. <laughs> that's it's just in the, the Bible. Bible for you. Yeah, <laughs> allergies are in the Bible? Yeah. Oregano is? Yeah. But uh, anyway, like, like I mentioned, a reason for hope is um, a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. here in Tucson, Arizona. But of course, you can join us all around the world, whatever time that is uh, for you. It's an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. Uh, so if you keep that in mind when you're trying to find us on some of the platforms that will help you out, you can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com. That's a great home base for you. Um, while you're there, just check out our website. We have lots of events and, and uh, Bible studies and support groups and all kinds of things and of course services here, Wednesday evenings and Sundays as well. So just have a click around, make yourself at home, Check out what's going on, especially if you're in the Tucson, Arizona area and you're looking for somewhere to fellowship. We'd love to have you come and visit us here at Calvary Christian Fellowship. Um, but for the purposes of this evening, that watch live tab right there, if you click on that, that will take you out to our live page. Whenever we are live, we stream to this page, ccftucson.online.church. Or again, follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. When we're offline, you'll see a countdown to our next show. You'll see a schedule of upcoming events. But when we're live, you'll see the video right there. You can sign in with a username. And that's one of the ways you can send your questions in. There'll be like a chat box that I will be monitoring and uh, send your question in there and we'll get them on our show today. 
Lord willing. Uh, we're on Facebook, of course, <coughs> facebook.com slash CCF Tucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson. We'd love it if you would like and share. We'd love to reach not only yourself, but your friends, people in your sphere of influence. So if you've been blessed, uh, share us around on these various platforms. We'd appreciate that. But that's another way you can send your question in, in the chat function, and I will be watching there too. Uh, we have an app that you can download on your mobile device, whether it's an iPhone or Android or your iPad or whatever it is. You can download that app on there. Look for that red background with the Calvary Chapel Dove logo, and you can watch us through that method as well. And we have a channel on Roku, and we have a channel on Apple TV as well. So if you use those, if you have a smart TV with those functions or a Roku stick or box or those kind of things, add our channel, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and watch us there as well. We are on YouTube. Just search for A Reason for Hope. That's a great place to go to catch uh, an archive as well. Every time, uh, of course, we go live, but um, every time we're live, it will archive automatically. Go to that live uh, tab right there, and you can catch up on shows you missed or re-watch them. Uh, you know, re-watch our wonderful discussion we just had on allergies, for instance, and oregano. oregano. <laughs> so anything you missed <laughs> will be right there uh, for you and our services here at Calvary Christian Fellowship as well. Our senior pastor here, Scott Richards, is not with us today. He's with us Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, uh, usually. He is on Twitter. Follow him, Scott R4H. And he posts highlights from the show and he posts kind of commentary on things going on in the world from a biblical and prophetic and end times perspective. Um, it's very interesting to follow along with him. So Scott Richards on Twitter, Scott R4H, if you're a Twittery kind of person. We're on Rumble now as well. Uh, for now, it's just an archive we post there. We've been getting some good traffic on there. We're hoping to maybe go live. We're looking into that capability. But if you're on Rumble, look for A Reason for Hope, Bible Q&A, and you will find us there. And our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. That's questionsforhope spelled out at gmail.com. Uh, you can email us there, of course, anytime. If you are listening to us on the radio, you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you per se, but use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, and we'll get to that question on our next show. So once again, we're very glad you joined us. Send your questions in. We'll be grabbing all those questions and getting to them on our show today, Lord willing. But before we go any further, Sean, how would you like to pray for us today? We'd love to pause and pray. It's the one with the open lungs, yes. Yes, <laughs> that's right. Dad, thank you that we have the privilege of being here. and We want to invite you to be a part of this broadcast, not because we're worthy of you, but because you've made us worthy, that you've given us your word and equipped us with the opportunity and the platform to share it. However long we have it and however faithful we can see to it, allow you to be glorified as a result of what's spoken here today. We pray all this to be done in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. 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 Well, there's something you guys want to do, discuss before we jump into the questions today. Maybe you would uh, explain a bit more about that. Yeah, uh, Vern yesterday sent along a question regarding a, <laughs> I guess, uh, interesting portrayal of art, which uh, Peter is uh, very much an area of study that you're going through right now. And, well, just since I obviously wasn't there, I was listening firsthand, what was the crux, pun intended, of his question before we get into it? Uh, yeah, so interestingly, um, interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Let's do my job over here. Interestingly, uh, yesterday we were talking about Percy B. Shelley, who is, uh, who was a romantic poet, really famous guy, and he wrote an essay called In Defense of Poetry, and it was a very insightful essay about 
human nature and how we respond to the arts and why they're so important. And one of the points that he brings out that I said the Bible actually agrees with is that human experience is conveyed uniquely through the arts, right? That's the only place you can do it. So we're always experiencing things throughout God's creation. And uh, guys like Samuel Taylor, Samuel Taylor Coleridge actually said that human beings are the eighth day of creation. And what he meant is that after God creates everything in the known universe, in the material universe, you need an observer to be able to experience that creative work and then to utilize their imaginative capabilities in order to create through the inspiration that they receive from the created order, right? So it's a very beautiful kind of co-creation that we do with God. Now, uh, because of the power that the arts have, because they are, again, direct experience projections, right? I'm able to experience something and then directly share that experience with you where you can have all the same emotions. If I'm doing it right, you could have all the same emotions and impact of that experience that I myself firsthand uh, was able to have. Because it has so much potency, we have to be very careful about how we utilize the arts, but if we use them correctly, we actually can use them to glorify God. And we don't actually have to do arts that are completely real. In other words, we don't always as Christians have to make movies about the life of Jesus or the life of the apostles or the life of the patriarchs. We could make a human story that has biblical elements throughout. Um, you know, a couple weeks ago, we went over A Tale of Two Cities, which was written by Charles Dickens, and it is a Christian novel. Uh, it's not a real story. It didn't actually happen. But there are elements of the gospel in it. There are, element, there are characters in there that are clearly living out Christianity. There's allusions to the cross. There's allusions to what it means to be a Christian, even in tumultuous times. It's a really, really excellent story that illuminates the Christian life, even though it's not true, right? It's not a true story that actually happened. So given that art can do that, and that was the topic of discussion we were going over, one of the questions that we had was, okay, well, there's this church where I'm from, and every now and then for Easter, I think it was, they'll have depictions of various pop icons on the cross. So they had like Tony Stark, portrayed as crucified on the cross after uh, Avengers Endgame came out, or they had like Sleeping Beauty portrayed on the cross, or, uh, you know, various other characters that had moments of self-sacrifice, and they used it to point to Jesus. And he said, is there a point as Christians when we're depicting art that we can go too far, right? We can kind of desacralize the things within Christianity that are very important. And the answer that I'd have to that is an obvious resounding yes. Right? So the point of art, once again, is to illuminate experience, but art can also be used to denigrate experiences. And it's a very easy thing to do, and it's even easy to do it in an unintentional way. So for instance, uh, a very good example of this would be, say, the movie Peter Pan made by Disney. Um, I actually really like the movie Peter Pan. I think it was really well done. Uh, I read the book Peter and Wendy, and they definitely cut out the more disturbing parts that are contained in that book. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, it's a very, it's just a fun book. It's a fun movie, I'm sorry. But in the movie, there is a depiction of Native Americans that's a little on the racist side. What makes side. the red man <laughs> <Yeah>. red? <laughs> it's a little on the racist side. Now, the people who are a little making on the, the racist yeah, side. <laughs> that's a, that's a pizza mind. Putting it, putting it lightly. <laughs> um, but what some people could say is, well, you know, 
they were trying to, it, it's not intended to insult Native Americans. They were trying to depict Native culture and they were trying to kind of poke fun at some tropes and some stereotypes and things like that. Okay, all that being said, so we could watch it and we can understand that's what they were trying to do. It fell a little flat. You could still enjoy the movie, but you could recognize that this is a bit of a tone deaf attempt at appreciating a culture. Well, all that being said, we recognize that there was a desacralization of the culture, right? So there's a culture that they're trying to depict, but by making it overly stereotypical and by in some ways mocking the stereotypes contained within that culture, mm. they're insulting it, whether intentionally or not. The same thing is true with these depictions of the cross, right? The cross is a sacred event within the history of humanity, and especially it's a center point of all Christianity. Right. To have a fictional character depicted on the cross is a desacralization of the cross, right? It's making it less than what's it, what it's intended to be. Now, uh, just kind of point it over to you, Sean, because you do this a lot yeah. uh, within your own YouTube channel. Not the bad part that I just said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah uh, you, you do this all the time. Yeah, you do this all the time, man. Uh, but you utilize stories, right? Fictional stories to illuminate aspects of the gospel. So for you, like when you're making your videos, where do you feel like the line is for yourself? Well, I think the line is in the goal. And if you stop short of that goal, that's where not just the failure, but the disrespect ends up being a part of this. And what's interesting about even the Peter Pan trope and the stereotype humor, the reason why people oftentimes find it offensive is because, like with the cross, it ends up falling short of the whole story. Yes, these stereotypes have some ground in truth, otherwise they wouldn't have become a stereotype, but because they don't tell all that the culture is and think that's it, it ends up falling short of reality. If someone were to, and we've talked about this before, say that the essence of the gospel is in this fictional portrayal of self-sacrifice, yes, it is true that Tony Stark laid down his life for those he loved. I'm all for that. But if I say that the only motivating factor was the elimination of evil, the giving of one's life so that we could have a brighter future, there was no resurrection. There was no perfect man as the sacrifice. There was no prophecy setting this up. And on and on it goes. It falls short of the whole story. So whenever I have the opportunity to talk to people halfway in an area they're familiar with regarding the gospel, the first thing I want to inform them of is not just what I'm doing, but why. My goal isn't to bring Christianity into uh, my first and uh, probably most prolific illustration of the gospel was in the TV series My Little Pony. But it isn't to bring the gospel into My Little Pony, it's to bring My Little Pony into the gospel. The difference is subtle, but the word order matters, because if I then instead say, well, and this is uh, just a fun story I like telling because it makes people so confused and uncomfortable, is when uh, the second My Little Pony film, the more popular and uh, modern Generation 4 version, Rainbow Rocks came out. Uh, there was a public screening at our local theater, and there were three types of people in the audience. There were, of course, the intended audience, the little girls with their moms who are like, oh, pretty ponies, all that fun stuff. There were the bronies, the adult male fans of the show that I was a part of that ended up appreciating the show for its character development and moral values. And then there was me. 
was sitting in the front row with like three books open and furiously scribbling notes by hand as all the events in the film were going on. And, you know, one of these things does not belong. One of these things is not like the other. So people obviously look at that and go, what is your intent in this? And when I see, for example, I mentioned that show specifically because without hesitation, the most direct, obvious, and easiest time I've had in making a biblical parallel in that show than anything else in that series. And it went on for a long time. Mm. Uh, not one episode that I went through, not one film didn't have some biblical parallel or illusion. That film is my favorite to this day for one reason. And you can check the video to find out what. But if I were to say, that's the gospel, if I were to you know, put <laughs> Sunset Shimmer and her redemption alongside of the main characters, uh, the villain from the first story, and say this is the essence of the gospel, that that uh, you know, Jesus alicorn that showed up and disarmed the demons, that that was the gospel, I'd be leaving important details out. Great details were emphasized, and I wanted to draw attention to that, which maybe to the best of intentions, Vern, your pastor was trying to do. But in settling for the art, they sacrificed the story. Hopefully that doesn't <laughs> uh, end up miscommunicating anything, but this is the point. When we look for types, illusions, symbols that can give part of the picture, that can focus on a particular aspect of something that no one painting can fully encapsulate, we call that reality, and say, that theme is important to me. I can reduce it to only that theme, or I can expand it as a stepping stone. And this is what Paul said to the church in Corinth when he was talking not just about their experiences with God, but the Old Testament itself and the records of Israel's experiences with God throughout history. He says in verse 11, after 10 verses of setting up all these examples, believe it or not, from the book of Numbers, he says, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages has come. So there was a purpose in these things being emphasized and other things being left out. Do we know everything about the nation of Israel ever? No, because the books of Moses and the history of the kings and prophets are not Israel's story. It's God's interactions with Israel. There's a difference. If we were to only focus on this nation, we'd miss the bigger picture. If we were to only focus even on an individual, we'd miss the bigger picture. Of what? depends what your goal is. Am I communicating the nation's history or Jesus's history, his story, as we oftentimes call it when making historical references to the Bible? And that's the whole point. What's the goal in these discussions? Do I reference Avengers Endgame? Do I reference Sleeping Beauty? Do I reference My Little Pony with the goal of it of itself and using the Bible to prop it up more? Or do I use that to better communicate a greater story, a greater topic, a greater individual, more worth our time than, as I often say on those videos, 20 minutes out of our Saturday mornings, or an hour and a half if you're watching Disney. And this is where this verse tends to be the foundation for anything we should seek for entertainment purposes. Verse Timothy 4 and verse, let me start in verse 4. It says, Every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified, literally the word means cleansed and set aside for a new purpose, by the word of God and prayer. 
Now, as you may imagine, and as I'm sure he'll be able to attest tomorrow, when his high school-aged son was up every Saturday morning watching Technicolor pastel ponies on the TV screen when I was still living with him, you could imagine that would have raised eyebrows, if not questions, as far as his son's masculinity, <laughs> so to speak. But what was also interesting about the event, why I was watching My Little Pony to begin with on such a regular basis, was the fact not just that I was sitting on the couch, but that I had an open Bible, that I was taking notes and looking things up, that it was getting me involved, not in the show as a means to an end, not just mindlessly occupying my time with the story, but using that story to get my nose into scripture, a greater goal than entertainment. And obviously in the context of this, he's speaking of people who are basically mincing details about food sacrifice to idols, controversies concerning food, and says these things are good if if they point you to something greater. If all you're getting out of it is a meal, then it's may as well just not be a part of your life because it serves no ultimate purpose other than preserving the now. But if you use this, for example, when you pray before you eat, you're getting double benefits, not just physical nourishment, but spiritual nourishment involving God in the meal. Are you taking these things in not just because you're hungry, but using it as an opportunity to reflect on the Word of God, to gather together for the breaking of bread and the fellowship with God's people. That's the idea being built up here, and I'll, I'm repeating this point just so that you all remember. When I seek entertainment, it should be for more than its own sake, if I call myself a Christian. If I want to redeem the time, if I want to build myself and those around me up in the fear and the knowledge of the Lord, I do myself a greater service, not in settling for less, the Iron Man, the Sleeping Beauty, the you know ponies and all that other stuff, but looking to Jesus, looking for Jesus, and seeking Jesus through these things, not using Jesus to enjoy those things more. There is a subtle difference, but it is an important one. Yeah, yeah. So, again, like, it's not that we would disagree with the heart behind it uh, as sean is pointing out it's like yeah it, there's a heart behind this event which is we're going to utilize this story to help people understand the gospel it's again utilizing the icon of the cross in order to do so right that that denigrates god as opposed to elevating the story so what sean is pointing out is that i can utilize a lesser story that represents christian themes and i can show how they transcendently point to christ because again, the image of God is implanted on all of us, and so therefore, the story of God, the reality of God is implanted on all of us. We see it even if we don't understand it. And many artists represent it without fully grabbing what they're representing. Uh, so a lot of these people that are making these films or these TV shows or these books, they don't even understand the beauty that they're representing. But as Christians, the one who knows the book, right, who knows the book that every other book is based around, knowingly or unknowingly, we're able to see the gospel even through the artworks of people who don't know God. That's an amazing thing. But again, we don't use the icons, we don't use the images of Christianity to show that. Uh, we utilize the images of the world 
to show beyond the world, right? To show the king beyond the world. So if, if the pastor wants to stand up and they want to illustrate, hey, you know, we see as, as human beings that self-sacrifice is a beautiful thing. And it's just like in this movie where Iron Man lays down his life for his world and he sacrifices himself in order to save other people. And that shows that imprinted in the heart of man is this understanding that sacrifice is a beautiful thing, putting the needs of us above uh, of yourself below the needs of others is something that is glorious and points to the beauty of God. And the reason why we see it as good, even if we don't know God, is because God is real. God has lived in a human person, namely Jesus Christ. He has died for your sin. All these experiences that you're having are true, and this is where that reality meets the fiction, right? And that's what inevitably actually converted C.S. Lewis, where he realized he really loved all the mythological stories that he was ingrained in as a kid, but he couldn't understand why until his friend J.R.R. Tolkien pointed out to him, the reason why you like these stories so much is because they point to a truth that you don't understand yet, right? There is a God beyond the universe. There is a sacrifice that heals all wounds. There is a love that transcends all darkness and breaks every curse, right? And that yeah. is found in Christ, and that's what you're looking for. And then Lewis later on summed it up, by saying, if I find in myself a desire that nothing on this earth can satisfy, I must conclude I wasn't built for this earth, right? So that's what we're doing. We're utilizing these representations of goodness found in media in order to point to the transcendent God. We don't use the transcendent images of God in order to portray a character of fiction, right? That's, mm. that's going the wrong way about. So right. I, I think that the heart behind it was good. I wouldn't do it though. I, that, that would be my short answer. Yeah, there is an aspect, and forgive me if you covered this because I was doing some reading yeah, questions. Why don't you pay attention? <laughs> I, try, I really try to do both at the same time. I also need to have a question to come up next, <laughs> so you don't stop talking. I'm like, ah, uh, I don't know what we're talking about. Um, but uh, there's, uh, would you agree? There's an aspect to it of of um, maybe misleading people, you know, with uh, maybe new believers or unbelievers or weaker faith. You know, the Bible would call it perhaps. I know, you know, I'm a uh, as a worship leader, picking songs, there was a, a song that I sang for years and years and years and loved. I won't mention the song it is. It's a beautiful song from an amazing, you know, worship songwriter who has been absolutely, you know, his contribution to uh, music ministry and worship songs has been, you know, uh, incredible. But um, it was a song, basically, the, the premise was the verses talking about Jesus, how he was a, just above, you know, all things and, you know, the highest authority and all that kind of thing. And then the, the chorus was him coming to the cross. Um, and the very last line was, um, you thought of me above all. And I sang that for years and years and kind of filtered it through, like, yeah, he laid his life down for me, he thought of me. Um, and someone after a service uh, came up and, and was... Uh, uh, irate. Yeah, not irate, but um, something less than that, I can't think of the word. But flustered. Flustered, troubled by that song. Stumbled. Like, you know, Jesus thought of me above all you know that's not true he i mean for one he was being obedient to the father you know and what he did um and he didn't put mankind above himself you know right. and i realized that i as a believer i kind of filtered that through you know i wasn't thinking like yeah i'm above jesus or you know but i just filtered it like yeah he laid his life down that's what i thought yeah but uh, her argument was for people younger in their faith they'll be they might be misled you right. know they might think that that's what it is. We're God, you know. We God put us above Himself, and I think there's mm. even other religions that well, uh, feel knowing, that way. Knowing the song you're referring to, you took the fall and you thought of me 
full stop above all sorry to spoil that's the title of the song it's yeah. a musical structure it's not a continuous sentence or theological point yeah. uh, obviously misunderstander is going to misunderstand that's why ezekiel and jesus both oftentimes said he who has an ears to hear let him hear there are people who are uneducated and they can fix that by seeking clarification or hopefully graciously in time seeking correction, getting confused and realizing, eh, the Spirit's checking me something on this. I'm going to ask the worship leader or maybe one of those pastors up there. And then on the other hand, the person who doesn't want to understand, who's just taking away whatever makes them feel good, well, if they hear the truth from us, it's not going to make them feel good. If that's what's driving them, then they're not going to understand, even if they do have a perfectly theological and... Uh, a soteriologically sound lyrical sheet. They're looking to make a mess, so I'm being funny. But the point being made is that misunderstanders going to misunderstand. I don't think we should censor ourselves is the right point yeah. for the sake of those who wouldn't know and also to restrain ourselves to those who uh, couldn't know. Yeah. But if, on the other hand, you are you know, sensitive to those weaker in faith, obviously there's a time and a place for instruction. But if you, I guess, withhold the meat for the sake of the baby at the table, then everyone ends up eating applesauce. It's not going to be nourishing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, no, I, I think that the example that you're using is actually really good. Uh, it illustrates kind of a lesser Thank point you. of the better, <laughs> of, the, so of the kind of bigger example that was given to us in the question. So yeah. I, I obviously don't, wouldn't put those two things on the same level. Because yeah. I think representing Tony Stark on the, on the crucifix <laughs> a versus, bit of a weirdo. Versus, versus seeking something <laughs> that could be misinterpreted is are two different things but the point is you're right to connect them yeah artistic license the artistic license yeah. would be the same of uh okay again you're representing an experience within reality through the arts and if it has the potential to stumble someone in a massive way in their faith should you do it and the obvious answer I, if, if you were to ask me that question like if we, we were alive and i was this age 20 years ago I might say, no, I, th I think we're being a little oversensitive, but we live in this modern age that actually does believe that we are more highly glorified than God, that God right. really does exist to uh, simply lay down everything for us, and right. it's really about my will and not about his will, and the prosperity gospel is the most uh, widespread and growing, yeah. I would say, departure from the faith that exists within the West right now. So because of those reasons, it's like, yeah, wow, I, I could see how it would be very easy for someone to sing those words and experience yeah. narcissism right. and say, yeah, he he did think about me above all. Right. You know, he really did put my life above his own. And, and so like the Orthodox Christian, like someone like you, is listening to the song and they're saying, yeah, you know, how amazing it is. You're, you know, you may be even thinking about Philippians 2 that you know, he didn't consider, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe not that passage number, but you, you're, you're aware of the passage. <laughs> yes, that yes, he, that <laughs> where the number two. Sorry, yeah, carry yeah. On. <laughs> uh, but you know, you're aware of the passage that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, yeah. but he emptied himself of his glory that he might be poured into the form of a bondservant and die on a cross for us. So you're listening to that song and you're seeing how the songwriter may have been thinking of yeah. like, oh, wow, you know, isn't it amazing that Jesus didn't even consider his life or his eternal glory 
something to be held on to for me. Like he thought about me above all. I mean, right. what's higher than the glory of God? And he right. gave that up for me. So that that's how an Orthodox Christian would listen to it. But someone who's consumed with narcissism in this world would listen to it and say, yeah, you know, God did die for me. And you know what? Jesus loves me. And who are you to judge me? And Jesus cares about me no matter what. And, and they can go in that bad direction. And so I think as a Christian, having that check in your heart is a good thing. And so in the same way, I could look at that and say, well, yeah, you know, Tony Stark did, even though he's a fictional character, he did represent a type of self-sacrifice that is reminiscent of the cross, right? So I could see that and see it as what they were going for, right? I'm not going to be stumbled by that. But someone else might see it and be like, well, yeah, you know, like Jesus sacrificed himself for us. But, you know, we sacrifice ourselves for other people all the time, you know, in progressive Christianity. That's the idea is that, you know, Jesus was special, but he's just representing something that everyone is going to do. You know, everyone's going to sacrifice themselves for their fellow man. And they, they don't really see it as the highest, most exalted expression of love mm. that the world has ever seen and as the center point of our salvation, salvation, right? So it not only is it stumbling, but like I said, it desacralizes, right? It makes unsacred one of the most sacred events in all of human history. So yeah. uh, for, for those reasons, again, I would say bad move. Mm -hmm. I, I, think it's, I think it's a very bad move. I think it's a uh, well-intentioned, foolish move, and I would caution any pastor from replicating it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's a line between poor communication skills and just missing the point. Right. Yeah, right. Brilliant. Well, thanks for sharing that. It's a very interesting discussion. Love it. <laughs> you want to delve into the questions? Apparently, so I it. use the word delve a lot. Delve. Also Scott said dive. Delve. So I'm trying to use other words. I need to get a thesaurus. We have a question from Craig here. Welcome to the show, Craig. Thank you for your question. Um, Jesus said, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. And we're told there isn't favoritism. Did he mean that the Jews had this first and now it's available to the Gentiles? Otherwise, it does sound like favoritism. <laughs> I'm gonna read it like that because I like the end. Wasn't Jesus, that was Paul, but the Holy Spirit. So let's read it. <laughs> uh, this is Romans <laughs> chapter two. Um, the conversation, of course, is following up from Romans chapter one, which also uses this statement, but in a different way. Let me read that just so you understand. This can be applied based on the words around it. Verse 16 of Romans 1 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, not ethnicity, note that, but the gospel of Christ is the subject, of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, quotes the book of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. Then he goes into an interesting overview of the world apart from God, still being accountable to God because despite not having a direct revelation of him like the Jew, which he begins in chapter 2, we'll get into in a moment, they are accountable to what they do know, what has been revealed to them of God, and then notes that there is judgment for that. But chapter 2 goes in and begins with the point, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you who judge, for whenever you judge, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. We know the judgment of God is according to truth to those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, that you who judge such practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape 
the judgment of God. And then note the goodness of God is what leads to repentance, not us pointing out the issues and the ways we all fall short. Now, jumping a little bit ahead, this is where we get that sandwich of to the Jew first and also to the Greek, starting in verse 9 noting that those who receive God of eternal life, those who reject him, have nothing but indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil. Notice the flow of his thought, to the Jew first, but also of the Greek. The wrath of God is due on them if they do evil. But then verse 10 says, But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. Then goes on to note, those who sin without the law are still sinners. <laughs> those who sin with the law are still sinners. We're all, this is the point of Romans 3, falling short of the glory of God with or without the full revelation of God. And he even makes a point in noting that the Jew has an advantage. They were given the oracles of God. They were given the Old Testament, a revelation of God more direct than the other nation had. But all are accountable to him. Why? Because now all people have been shown who God is. He's entered into human history. All nations have had the gospel declared to them. They are seeing what God is like firsthand and now are accountable to that. But if we ask, well, God showed favoritism to the Jews because he gave them more. No, the point of the first chapter is a little or a lot, you still stand before God guilty. The people who have more are more guilty because they not only know that they're wrong, but where and how they got it wrong. But the point being made in the flow of the book isn't to say the superior Jew, and especially not the superior non-Jew. It's noting the superior God who ministered to both of them at their own times. And that was the point of the book of Hebrews. It began with God, who in various times and in various ways spoke to us by the prophets and the fathers, has now spoken to us by his Son. That was the revelation given to the Jew first, not in priority, but in chronology, which is your point. If on the other hand, we ask ourselves the question, so what advantage do they have? More information leads to an informed conclusion. That's the point that Paul's making. But note that as the flow of the thought, as the flow of the conversation, as the flow of the, dare I say, argument, Paul's making for God's revelation of the gospel is laid out for us in history, ultimately culminated in Jesus Christ. The Jew has more information to go on. The Jew has just as much to answer for the Gentile. Why? Because we're all answering to the same thing. What do you do with my son? And that's the point. Good. Good. <laughs> I approve. No. A resounding good. Amen. <laughs> uh, you guys are silly. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Craig, for that uh, question. Great question. Uh, definitely a great thing to uh, get under your belt in the Bible, for sure. Thank you. A uh, question from Yari here. Welcome, Yari. Uh, it says a follow-up from yesterday, I guess. How old was Mary when she had Jesus? I asked because... Uh, my mom is upset when she sees 15-year-olds who are moms and dads, um, but in certain countries, that's their culture. Um, do you think our culture is more correct? Should other cultures be more like Americans, having kids into their 20s and 30s, or is it better to have a kid as a teenager? And I think the, the point she is ever that some people may mom? be like, well, you know, she, you know, Mary had a kid when, when she was you know, a teenager, so I'm just going to do that too kind of thing. Yeah, know? it so, says that right here. <laughs> right, on yeah, this, so, the extended part of the Bible. Yeah, yeah. the joke is that we, we don't know. 
how old Mary was. Now, what, what your mom could be referring to is in the culture, we can intimate that possibly Mary was a teenage mom. Right? Yeah. We, we don't really know that for a certainty, but culturally, yeah, that, that was consistent with what we know about Middle Eastern culture during that time is that girls tended to have babies very young, uh, around like 15 or 16. Now, there After are certain- After their bot yeah. Right, right. So th there's definitely certain things that we have to understand about the culture that might make it more okay. And then I'll explain kind of why our culture has determined that that's not okay. Uh, you have to remember that number one, in that day, the most important thing that could be done for the survival of a family and for the survival of a tribe and a nation was to create as many kids as physically possible, right? So this is not the good modern times in which we have all these technological advancements. We have bank accounts, we have social security, we have 401ks, we have Medicare, right? We have all these social safety nets that allow us to kind of take our lives at ease. We could retire. There are things that uh, allow us to progress. And we have many, many, many people inside of our nation. We're a very well protected nation. And so we don't need to have large stores of military age males that are willing to go to battle. We only need like 1% of the population to be willing to do that. Back in their day, that, that wasn't the case. Um, if you wanted to retire, you better have a lot of kids that could support you in your retirement. If you right. wanted to have a farm that was functioning, you better have a lot of kids that are able to run the farm. If you want to have a nation that's protected, you better have a lot of kids and hope that some of those kids are male and they're ready to fight and die for their nation and their tribe. So uh, having kids was very, very important. And you also have to remember that the infant mortality rate back then was incredibly high. Uh, even as early, I mean, I'm sorry, as late as the 1600s, the infant mortality rate was still about one in two. So wow. if you wanted to have a good sized family, again, you would have to start very, very young because you're gonna have to have, if you wanted just five of those kids to make it to maturity, you're gonna have to have at least 10. That's a lot on uh, someone's body. Yeah. And once you get past the age of 30, for a lot of women, not all women, but for a lot of women, their chances of miscarriage and their chances of conception, well, their chances of conception go way down and their chances of miscarriage go way up. So it only made sense in that culture to start trying to have kids as young as you possibly could. Uh, you also have to remember that our modern day conceptions of university education, uh, even in a lot of countries today, that's not really an expectation of kids. So today we think like, well, you don't even enter the workforce until you're in your 20s. Well, in a lot of places, this idea of prolonged adolescence that's inside of America doesn't exist even to this day in most modern countries mm -hmm. because they realize that prolonging adolescence is bad for somebody and that you should be able to get into your occupational career as quickly as possible. So a lot of kids in Japan, Switzerland, right, places like that, they're already in their occupational trade schools by the time they're in what we perceive as high school in America. So, and again, that helps people develop a, a lot, lot better. But back in the day, for a lot of women, they, they wouldn't even be able to do that. So it's procreation of children and then learning how to run a household and an estate in order to provide for the family. Those were the important things that a woman had to learn how to do. So in modern days, we would say, well, that's so tragic that someone is pregnant at the age of 15. Why? Because now a lot of opportunities that in our culture, you need to go through certain rungs in order to get to are now closed to that person yeah. forever, right? 
they're probably never going to be able, I mean, they can, but if they have great familial support and a lot of backing behind them, it's going to be very tough for them to get a college education, to get a career going. Mm -hmm. uh, it's going to be tough for them to get married. Uh, most people in our culture don't want to marry someone who already has kids, right? So uh, there's a lot of disadvantages that happen when someone gets pregnant at the age of 15. So that's what your mom is, is witnessing. But those same concerns wouldn't have been alive and well during the time of Mary. Right. So those are some of the reasons why our culture does. Another kind of modern thing that we've realized is that most women's bodies are actually not ready to get pregnant at ages like 14 or 15. Uh, they need to be around 16 to 18 to be ready. And even 16 is on the young side. 18 is yeah. more in the, in the right realm for most women because their bodies are I mean they're they're done developing in some ways but they're not done developing in a lot of other ways and so a lot of dangerous things can occur within a woman's body if she gets pregnant too young now th there's arguments that possibly that wasn't the case for a lot of these women in these really rural rough and tumble cultures mm. where they're working the field since they're you know 10 years old. I was in Afghanistan and these girls are working harder than most men are in the United States when they're eight years old, right? They're, they're every morning they're waking up at yeah. four o'clock in the morning before morning prayer. They're walking, you know, quarter mile to a mile to the canal and they're filling up 40 gallon buckets and dragging them back to the house so they have enough water for the home. These are eight year old girls doing that. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're hurting. So, so their bodies are obviously a little bit more rough and tumble than the American body. Yeah. So there's there's arguments that possibly that wasn't as true in that culture, yeah. but even then there, there was uh, some dangers there yeah. for sure. Plus there's so much going on with our hormones these days, with yeah. the kind of food we eat and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure we've deteriorated since those days. Yeah, I'd say stabber, so. you know. McDonald's, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not just McDonald's. Enough said. <laughs> but going <laughs> to back fair, to the, the main topic, to the yeah. question is about the age of Mary and the idea of cultural supremacism. First of all, Teen Mom is <laughs> an American TV show. This is a very prevalent issue in the United States as well. We're not so perfect. But the idea needs to be understood. First of all, there's the accusation that's made from apocryphal, meaning to conceal, unbiblical sources, that Mary was in, like, borderline, you know, barely approaching double digits, and that Joseph never physically touched her because of the cult that wrote the work and making the point that Jesus was this uh, spiritual supernatural entity, that Mary couldn't have given birth at such a young age, thus that proves the idea Jesus didn't have a physical body, and that Joseph in the perpetual virginity of Mary never touched her, was just kind of a guardian. They try to push his age into the 90s. Neither idea is supported in the text. What do we know about Mary? First of all, as her culture would have recognized, a first century Jewish culture, not a perfect culture, as we know, they believed that the words of the law should not would rather be burned than handled by a woman. A woman's testimony wasn't admissible in court. Jesus directly contradicted both of those things by making women the primary eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and of course the idea that they were recognized as prophetesses too, even in the Old Testament. But that then being said, the bat mitzvah, which was recognized them as a daughter of the law, was when they were considered of not marital age per se, but betrothal age, where as a time deemed appropriate by the parents, 
they would be in a committed relationship. Mary was in the betrothal period, meaning she was in that year frame of time where her parents had deemed her able to get married and were now all but legally married to Joseph, who likewise had been betrothed to her. We infer that he was around the same age, not because of, again, anything we read in the text, but because of how the culture generally betrothed people. And we can look at the accounts of Josephus and noting these kind of relationships had a similar age gap of between two to five years. So take that for what you will. When it comes to what we're told about Mary in the text itself, Luke chapter 1 is the biggest source on her experience regarding the conception of Jesus and the way she's able to think through and even recite accounts like 1 Samuel chapter 2 from memory in what we call today the Magnificat shows she was fairly educated, at least more than most Americans, ironically enough, on the gospel. The second place is, of course, Matthew chapter 1, where we're told Joseph's perspectives are from a second-hand view as he was observing Mary's claims and reacting to them. We note that he was in the betrothal, that he loved her, that he wanted to put her away quietly rather excuse me, than see her executed. That's what we know. Yeah. If we are to read more into this, we're either giving unnecessary kindling to skeptics, usually Muslims who are trying to equivocate Muhammad's relationship with a nine-year-old when he was 50 with Aisha, or atheists who are trying to say the Bible promotes pedophilia because God impregnated a newborn girl. Mm -hmm. The points are both extreme caricatures, not what's actually represented in reality. If we're going to, you know, albeit to bunk, debunk patronism, patriotism, patriotism, I'll get the consonants right eventually. <laughs> But the idea that America is a superior culture, that we always get things right, that the way we quote-unquote do things here, we're letting pedophiles and sex offenders watch our kids and read them stories and drag shows. That's not superior. There were issues with Israel too, but if we're going to say that we should be more, or rather they should be more like us, first of all, properly define us, quote-unquote. Secondly, properly define them. That's where the disconnect happens. So, and to more simply answer your question about like is there an ideal kind of time frame for parents to become parents right yeah. people strive to have kids uh, i would say that again it depends on the culture that you're in yeah. one of the main points of having kids is to be inside of a stable relationship with someone that you are committed to namely marriage and that you have the ability to provide for your children right so yeah. that you the two have become one flesh for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one so the idea is that i need to be financially independent enough to leave my family and to be able to provide for the new family i'm going to form with my new spouse right. so uh in our culture that probably would be the 20s right yeah. that's when most people are able to start a career and to be able to develop that career at enough of a level whether you're college educated or not in order to support a family right so that that probably would be the 20s for our culture yeah. one of the negatives that's happening in our culture right now is that most people think that the 20s are mainly to have fun and then you, you have your kids in your 30s the problem that i've seen as a counselor this is me personally is again that prolonged adolescence mm. if you give people too long without responsibility and learning how to sacrifice for others as opposed to just living life for themselves it's very very hard for them to make that transition the older yeah. that they get right. right to actually say okay now i'm going to have a kid which is a huge sacrifice right now i got two kids they'll tell you it's a very very big sacrifice to have children and if you've kind of conditioned yourself to be all about you, the idea that you're going to be able to make that transition easily is, is frighteningly low. So I would yeah. say, you know, as a culture, 
as a Christian culture, what we should be encouraging people to do is to say marriage and having children are an ideal. They're a good thing. They're, they're what God wants us to do. Now, every ideal is going to be challenged by certain circumstances. Not everyone can live up to the ideal for varying reasons. But the ideal is to get married and have kids. We should be encouraging people within the church to get married and have kids young. And by young, I mean in their 20s. Right? I think that that would be very beneficial for them. I became a dad in my late 20s. Uh, my wife was obviously in her 20s as well. I, I would actually have preferred to have kids even younger than that mm. uh, because I, I saw even myself that transition's a little tough the older that you get. You get yeah. so used to just living for you, right. um, you know. But yeah. anyway, anything you want to add to that? Too? Yeah. No, See, I'm in trouble. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, same with marriage too, transitioning into yeah. um, that from, you know, single person. But great. Well, Yari, I hope that helps uh, helps you out and helps you, you know, with conversations with your mom as well. All the best with that. Um, we have a, a, a viewer in Singapore, Sin. I think you pronounce it X I N. I think it's pronounced Sin. How dare you? <laughs> Chinese is my second language, but uh, no, no, it's not at all. But Sin, I think that's how you pronounce it. But um, and he's in Singapore, so welcome. Glad you you found out our program here. Um, what part does this is how I'm going to interpret your question, uh, Sin? Uh, what part does labor and striving have in our walk with God? In what way can we just rest in God's sovereign plan? Uh, striving for success, um, for a job, a promotion, etc., or should we essentially just sit back and let God work? So where's that balance of no, striving yeah. or just like, well, God's sovereign going to take care of it? E excellent, excellent question. Yeah. So um, I, I've mentioned this on a show before. This actually is a huge contention throughout church history of what does it mean to have everything we need met in Christ, yeah. but yet to still have wants? Or is having wants and desires antithetical to being complete in Christ. So Colossians 2 verse 10 says, you are complete in Christ, who is the fullness right. of the Godhead bodily. So a lot of Christians read that passage and they said, well, okay, well, if I'm complete in Christ, then I shouldn't want anything beyond Christ. I should have no needs beyond Christ. Yep. And therefore, if I find in myself a want, I am selfish, yep. right? That's something right. wrong with me. Yeah. Now, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So, uh, but other Christians on the other side were like, well, that does, doesn't work. Like, we can't all be monks living in a mountain somewhere content in Christ. So they did it, but they did it, they, they pursued kind of, uh, I guess you'd say worldly pursuits, but they did it thinking that they were doing something wrong. That's why we've, mm. the, the church has venerated what we call saints, right? These people who live these monastic lives right. where they gave up all their earthly goods in order to pursue God in the wilderness. And people said, oh, look at how holy these people are because they've given up everything earthly in order to pursue only spiritual good. Yeah. Um, now, Paul actually has a very good answer to this question. So this is 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'm going to actually read a couple passages from the same chapter because he's trying to answer this question. So uh, this is 1 Timothy 6, verse, we're going to start in verse 5. Uh, no, I'm sorry, we're going to start in verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Take note of that. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Now, later on, same chapter, verse 17, command those who are rich in the present age, which sounds weird, right? Because if I just read that first passage, you'd be like, well, being rich is obviously a sin. Well, here's a command to the rich. 
Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. Don't be proud and puffed up that you're rich, mm. nor to trust in uncertain riches, right? Don't be dependent upon the riches knowing that they're uncertain, right? They could, they could be taken away by some calamity or natural disaster. But in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So this is what Paul is saying. What's our ultimate ambition as Christians? To draw closer to God. That's our ultimate ambition. Is it okay to then have secondary, tertiary, quadriary, right? Is it okay to have different priorities beneath that primary priority? Paul says, yes, it is, but make sure it's what? Godliness with contentment. That I have all I need met in God, so I'm content, but I still want things but the difference is, is if I want something without needing it and I don't get it, I will be sad, but I won't be in despair. Yeah. But if I need something and I don't get it, then I will be in despair if I don't get it. So yeah. Paul's saying, check your heart. Always be praying against greed because it's a constant within our life. And it might not just be greed for money. It might be greed for relationships. It might be greed for career success. It might be greed for fame, notoriety, something like that. But we all have greed in our heart. We all have things that we have ambition for that we actually feel as though we need and not just want. Paul's saying, learn how to be more and more content in God. And then you can enjoy the riches of the world without becoming dependent upon them. Um, So that's a balance that Christians have to struggle with. So on one side, people are like, well, just want things because, you know, God is good and he's going to give you everything. That's like the prosperity message of Christianity. On the other side is the ascetic message of Christianity, which is don't want anything, just be ascetic and don't desire anything. The middle ground is want, but seek your need in God. Yeah. Right. Want, but seek your need in God. Yeah. And it's okay to want. Mm-hmm. You know, we had this conversation recently, too. I've been thinking about that a lot. Like, it's okay to say, I want, this is something I want. Yeah. You know, but not need. Because right. if you need it, you don't have it, then you, I guess you die. Because yeah. if you need it, then, That's right. then you need it, you know. <laughs> but you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, not in either or, it's a both and. Great. Great verse. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We're at the end of our show for today. Thank you for a great question. Sorry if we didn't get to the last couple. We'll pick it up again tomorrow. But uh, thank you again for joining us on Reason for Hope. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.